Hello, and welcome to uh, our first of a new series called Blessed, Broken, Given. Uh, it's a series we'll be doing over the next few weeks, and in it we'll be exploring a metaphor. We'll be looking at the metaphor of bread. We'll be thinking about how just as Jesus blesses bread, as he breaks bread and gives bread, so we are blessed people, we are broken people, and we are people who are given by Jesus to this world. But today we're just going to be looking at bread. We're going to be introducing ourselves to the topic by thinking about how bread is used in the Bible and what it represents. And we're going to be looking at the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. You can find it in your Bibles at Luke 9 verses 10 to 17. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NLT translation, which should appear uh, in front of you on your screens. That story is what we call the feeding of the 5,000. But it's not actually the only miraculous feeding that we see in the Bible. If you were to go all the way back to the 1440s BC or 1215 BCs, depending on who you ask, bread plays a massive role in the history of the people of God. You have ancient Israel, uh, who at this point in time are in servitude in Egypt. They are slaves in the land of Egypt. They are oppressed and they are facing huge hardship. But fortunately, they have somebody looking out for them. They have God. In Exodus 2.23, it says, Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. What you have here is a people who are in trouble. They are oppressed by a foreign nation, the nation of Egypt. But they are a people that God hears. He has heard them groaning and he knew it was time to act. God in his mercy rescued them. Through some mind bending acts of power he crippled Egypt and you know what the Egyptians didn't just let the Israelites go they gave them money and they told them to get out 
and the Israelites left and they went into the wilderness and they went in triumph. They were a triumphant people. But they also walked straight into a problem. Because you see, the wilderness is not a very easy place to live. It is the wilderness. Uh, water, food, shelter, those are all things that are pretty thin on the ground. And there were plenty of mouths to feed. In the book of Numbers, we read that there were 603,550 fighting age men amongst the group that left. That means that if you include the older people with the younger people and the women, that there are probably around about 2 million people involved in this trip. That's 2 million men, women and children walking through the desert. 2 million people who need water, bread and shelter. That is one heck of a logistical issue. And it is also an issue that people became aware of really quickly. In Exodus 16.2 we read, there too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. Moses has a mutiny on his hand. The people want to go back. They think they've been taken out into the wilderness in order to be killed. Here is what happened next. The first story that I read today was the story of the feeding of the 5,000, an incredibly popular story that the Christians love to hear over and over again. When we read about it and when we think about it, we think of Jesus as a powerful miracle worker, a, a powerful person who can take loaves, who can take fish, and he can use a very small amount of food to feed 5,000 people. But, you know, that story is by, you know, far from unique in the Bible. There are loads of occasions when God provides miraculously for people. Now, above, I told you the story of uh, Israel in the desert, where effectively it was the feeding of the two million. And actually, those two occasions are linked, because the story of the feeding of the 5,000 points back to the story of the feeding of the two million. They both take place in remote places, at places where it will be impossible to pop out and get a Tesco meal deal. They both finish with people being satisfied by what is provided for them. 
but most importantly, they both feature a God who provides. In the first story, we hear about God who provides for the Israelites in the desert. In the second, we hear about Jesus, who is God, thousands of years later, providing for the descendants of those very same people. Now, there isn't much complex about this. There aren't any deep theological secrets that are waiting to be unveiled. There aren't any metaphors or allegories to unpick. This is a simple story. Both of them are the story of the desert and the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. At their heart, they are simply God who feeds people. God, the God of Israelites, God, the God of Christians, Jesus Christ, providing for people, having compassion on people, and just giving them something to eat. Here's the takeaway from that. God has the power to provide for our basic needs. There are many people in this congregation today who are going through a time of change. Some people uh, very soon are going to be starting school for the first time or going up to secondary school for the first time. Some people are going to be going to college and there's a few who will be going away to university. And so those people who are heading to university um, that I want to speak to for a few seconds. These are some big moments for you, okay? Uh, I have spent the last seven years as what I call a perpetual student. What that means is that I have refused to grow up. Uh, every time one part of education finishes, I just find a new bit to stick on the end so I can carry on learning. But I like to think that in those seven years of being a student, I have discovered the secret to it all. I have discovered what it takes to be successful when you're studying at university. And I think it's something that all people need to know. So it's a secret that I'm going to share with you today. Always bring an empty backpack when you're visiting your parents. That means that you can offset the cost of getting to your parents by getting as much stuff as possible into the backpack to take back with you. Uh, for example, uh, if it took uh, a bus ride to get to your parents, then you need to make sure you fill that backpack with a loaf of bread, with some milk. Maybe put some jam in there as well, so you can get uh, a sandwich out of it. Uh, get some instant noodles and a few bits of cereal. That'll work just fine. If you had to go a little bit further, if, say, it was a train journey, or you had to get a plane to your parents, then it's going to be harder. But there are still things you can do. Uh, tip one, you need to make sure that when you're there, you eat as much as possible. Okay, get as much calories in you while you can, because that's free to take on the flight back with you. Also, make sure that you fill your backpack with as much, you know, soap, shampoos, toothpaste as you can. That one only really works on the train because of the whole liquids on the plane thing. But still, get as much of them as you can. You can get, get some toothpaste from Morrison's for about 50p, but your mum buys Colgate, so you should probably just steal that instead. It's a definite wing tactic. And the best thing about this is your parents won't mind. See, from the moment you leave their house, very, very soon, they will be worrying about you. They will be having nightmares of you selling your kidneys in order to buy a single loaf of mouldy bread. 
it will be hard to stop them giving you stuff. My mum, right, she got married to James a few years back, and James brought with him to uh, her house a, a nuclear bunker's worth of tin soup. He, he had loads of the stuff. She gave it all away. She gave it away to the four of us kids. A lot of it she gave to me. And it was great. It fed me for months. You see, parents express their love for their children by providing for them. Parents provide for kids. The Bible paints a picture of God as a God who is able to provide for us and a God who does provide for us. In the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, we have a demonstration of Jesus' power. But we also have him using that power to meet the basic needs of the people around us. This fits into a greater theme that runs through the Bible. And that theme is God as a great provider. But you know something? It's not just food that Jesus provides. After all, it was Jesus when he was in the desert that said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The fact is that God provides far more than just food. This is hinted at in the text that we read. In verse 16 of the feeding of the 5,000, it says, And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to eat before the crowd. This mirrors Luke 22:19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the feeding of the 5,000, the bread is just that. It is bread. Multiplied loads of times so that people can eat. But it is also something that points in a little, little way towards the Lord's Supper. Uh, this was the, the meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was killed. At that meal, he pointed to the bread and he told them the bread represented his body, which was soon to be torn apart. He pointed at the wine and he said that this wine represented his blood, which was soon to be spilt. He gave them the bread and he gave them the wine, showing how he gave them his own life, how he was going to give them his own life. He died on the cross, taking the place that we deserve, taking all the punishments that we have ever earned so that we might be free. Jesus is God, the great provider. He provides the little things that we need to live, food, clothing the oxygen around us. But he gives us other things as well. He gives us salvation. He gives us a relationship with him. As much as he provides for our physical needs, he also provides for our spiritual ones as well. In the feeding of the 5,000, um, Jesus, who is God, 
provides for people who are gathered to listen to him. In doing so, he reminds us that he is the God who provides for the everyday needs of his people. He provides their needs, whether that is physical or whether or not that is spiritual. But what does that actually mean for you and I today? What does God being the great provider actually mean for us now? Does it mean that this Saturday I can expect uh, God to, to turn up to Jesus, to turn up in my kitchen and cook me a full English breakfast? Does it mean I can expect an imminent bank transfer? Because after all, if Jesus can provide for people by feeding the 5,000, then surely he can chip in and help with the mortgage. Sadly, not quite. In this miracle, we learn that Jesus has the power to provide, and we learn about you know, the fact that he can provide. But it doesn't promise that he will deliver us breakfast, lunch and dinner every single day some sort of Deliveroo-like service. Now, what this story does do, though, is it gives us and calls us to have a new perspective. Check out the conversation that Jesus and his disciples have. Uh, When the disciples notice that people are hungry, they suggest that Jesus sends people away. Jesus refuses. He says, you give them something to eat. The disciples, being very reasonable people, then count up all that they have, and they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. You see, Jesus has given them a clear command, and the disciples clearly point out that Jesus is being unreasonable. There is no sense to what he says. Does he not understand basic logic anymore? They can't feed these people because they don't have any food. But you see, see, the thing is, the disciples have made a mistake. They have forgotten Jesus. They have forgotten who they are talking to. They have forgotten to take God's power into account. The power that sustains our very existence. That created this entire universe out of nothing. They have forgotten that this is the power that has the ability to give them salvation, the power that has the ability to provide for everything. And when you are in the presence of that power, you don't have to be as worried about dinner as you were before. You see, when we look at things from a human perspective, we are not looking at the whole picture. We see problems and we think that we have to be the solution to those problems. We look at our own needs, uh, the needs of the people around us, the needs of the world, and we think that we have to be the people that provide for them. And we get crushed under that responsibility. Maybe we don't. We might actually try and pretend the need isn't as big as it was. Or we might uh, pretend that we are far more capable of of meeting people's needs than we actually are. But in the end, it's all the same. We have to either accept uh, the overwhelming responsibility and be crushed by it or delude ourselves about its nature in some way. But you see, the human perspective is incomplete because we forget to factor in God. We forget that we do not face problems alone. 
We do not face the problems of the world by ourselves. We do not face the problems of our families by ourselves. We do not face the problems of our lives by ourselves. The needs of the world and our families and our lives are not simply needs that we need to provide for. Because we have a great provider by our sides. The God who fed the 5,000. The God who fed the 2 million. That is our God. This should change our perspective on how we live our lives. This should change our perspective on everything. Take money, for example. We no longer have to hoard money if God is our provider. Because if before we trusted money to provide for us, we needed to make sure we had as much as possible. Because our stability, our future, our security is bound up in the money that we have. So we need to grab as much of it as we can and keep hold of it. Money will provide for us. But if money isn't the thing that's providing for us, if God is, then we don't need as much money as we needed before. We can afford to be generous, to give away, to meet the needs of others, because we know that our needs ultimately will be taken care of by God. It doesn't mean be reckless, but it does mean be kind. This should change our perspective on work as well. Often we trust work as the thing that provides for us, the thing that provides us with security, uh, or even the thing that provides our families with food. This can give us an unhealthy relationship with it. For instance, if we had to make difficult ethical decisions at work, if we were pressured into doing something that we felt was wrong, and we felt that work provided for everything for us, then we would feel that we had no choice but to do whatever it is we had to to keep our job. We have to keep our job because our job provides for us, so we have to bend the rules, we have to fudge the numbers. We have to do what is wrong. But if our God provides for us, not our employer, then we can afford to stand up for what we believe in. Before I finish, I want to just tie up a few loose ends that might be floating around, a few questions or unfinished points. Firstly, God provides, okay? That is the, the motto of this talk, the main point, the thing I want you to remember. But he doesn't always use miracles. And in, in what we've looked at today, we've seen God provide miraculously. And I believe God does do that. I believe God has actually done that in my own life with food. But we have a God who invented nature, who came up with creation. So sometimes he will use incredibly ordinary means in order to provide for us. Shouldn't rule out the miracles, but we should also not rule out the boring stuff as well. Secondly, uh, we have to remember that we might be the means by which God provides. Just like the disciples who had to, to take the bread from Jesus to others, we might be the means by which God delivers the provision that he has to other people. In fact, we might be that provision ourselves. Uh, we might be uh, the bread, the thing being provided. That's actually a theme I think we're going to look at later on in the Blessed broken given series finally you might think that all this is a bit fanciful 
you might agree with the argument that God can provide. You might think that it's just a good story. Um, a good story of God who meets the basic needs of people, a consistent theme running through the Bible, that's all very nice. But you know what? When push comes to shove, will God actually provide for you? You might doubt that. After all, there are lots of people in this world who don't have what seems to be their basic needs. There are people in this world who are starving. There are Christians in this world who are starving, who face oppression. This concern is entirely legitimate. And it's actually something we can ask about other areas of Christianity as well. Uh, for instance, we believe that Jesus heals, um, yet every single year we lose people. Um, people suffer, people have chronic illnesses and people die. Uh, and you know, there is no simple answer. There is certainly not an answer that I'm going to tag on to the end of a sermon like this. It deserves far more than that. But this is what I can say. Firstly, uh, Christians believe that everything we have now is given to us by God. Uh, the food that we eat given to us by God because it is only by God's will that the food grew, whether or not it be animals or plants. We believe that it's only because God called those things into life and sustained those life that we have them. We believe that our jobs are ultimately gifts um, given to us by God's sovereignty. And we believe that even this day only exists because God called it into being. And that means that this provision that I'm asking you to rely on is not a hypothetical thing that you might one day need, but is actually something you are already relying on right now. Secondly, Jesus does not promise us that things will be easy in this world. In fact, he promises us that they will be darn hard. But one day, we will be standing by his side in the new creation. Everything will be made perfect. And in that moment, as we talk with him about our lives up until that point, because there will be a lot still to go, all of eternity still to live. As we stand with him, we look back at our lives up until that point. We will be able to say in confidence to him, and I know this is true. Wow. You know, Jesus, it didn't look like it at the time. But now I can see that you provided for me for all those years. You never let me down. And I know this because it is you who have brought me to where I am right now, standing by your side.